On September 1st, 1715, uh, after reigning over France for 72 years, Louis XIV died. And to this day, he's still the, the longest reigning monarch in European history. And he called himself the Great, Louis the Great. And he also assumed the title, the Sun King, because he took the sun as his personal symbol. Says a little something about who we're talking about. And on one occasion, in response to someone who was sort of questioning how he was wielding power over the state, he said, I am the state. And following his death, Louis lay in state for 40 days so that, that's what he ordered, so that everybody from wherever they might be in the world could all come to see him before his burial. The walls of the basilica where he lay was draped in black velvet. And at the final memorial service, which he had already sort of commanded how it would be ordered, all was made dark, except for a single candle that was put at his face, his open casket at the front of the basilica, so that all would be dark and the whole center of attention would be his illumined face with this one candle there. And the moment came when Bishop John Baptiste Massillon came forward to deliver his sermon, and he took his place at the head of the casket. And he paused, and he leaned forward, and he blew out the candle. And then cried out in the darkness, only God is great. The Lord alone is God, and only God is great. Upon Him do kingdoms rise and fall. Upon His Word do light and darkness go forth. He raises people up and He sets them down. And so it can be tempting to think that maybe the truth will die with us or perhaps all hopes for the kingdom coming are going to rise and fall based upon our contribution or what we can do. Or we may be tempted to think it will die with some great leader where we believe the purposes of God will fail because the mighty have fallen or because of some great enemy that has risen up. What will the church do if so-and-so leaves or dies? What will the church do if fill in the blank? What will become of God's work on earth if we're taken away? Well, simply put, the work will continue. In whatever form and to whatever end, the Lord will have it continue. And one of the ways that the Lord proves that He is God and that His Word abides forever is through transitions from one leader to another, from one generation to another, from one ministry to another. And then the Lord just keeps accomplishing greater things, which is one of the main points of 2 Kings 2. Our main point, you'll see there in your notes, so that the Lord alone is God. He gives, He takes, and always abides with His people. Let's begin in verse 1. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elijah said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. 
And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elijah and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elijah, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elijah and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to one side and to the other, till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, you have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it will be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha cried, saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord? the God of Elijah. And when he struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. You'll notice as you read and listen that the whole passage carries this atmosphere of, of tension and anxiety, that something significant is about to happen, and everyone, they feel it, they know it. Someone's about to be taken from them, which they sense it acutely. That there's something bigger that's about to be gained, which they don't see coming. One candle is about to be snuffed out. But then another candle will burn in its place. Both of those pointing to a much greater light to come. A light who will abide forever. So what we'll do now is just sort of draw four main points from, or big points from, the passage and just kind of walk through those points together. The first one you'll have there in your notes, the Lord wisely gives and takes. The Lord's about to take Elijah. Everyone seems to know it. And that word take is going to appear five times in ten verses. We're really meant to get that point. Verse 1, now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Verse 3, do you not know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? Verse 5, do you not know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? Verse 9, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. 
Verse 10, if you see me as I'm being taken from you, it shall be so for you. Elijah's not just going to go or leave. He will be taken. In other words, the Lord is in control, not Elijah. The Lord is sovereignly and graciously governing the events of this story, not Elisha. The Lord's going to decide who departs and when, not his prophets. The Lord is guiding this, not the sons of the prophets, which is just a way of labeling all the seminary students and pastors and training of that day. Many of them who were studying under Elijah and Elisha. And so they kind of know where this ship is going. They're just not getting to steer it. It was the Lord that rose Elijah up in the first place. It was the Lord that gave him power and gave him this ministry, placed him into ministry into 1 Kings 17.1. It was the word of the Lord that came to Elijah in 1 Kings 17.2. It's the only reason he exists in his office as a prophet is God chose him. God gave him. God gifted him. God gave the word of the Lord to him. The Lord sustained his life through drought and famine. In other words, the Lord's the only reason Elijah's alive to this day. The Lord sustained his ministry for years in the face of adversity. It's the only reason he hasn't been killed to this point. The Lord heard his prayers and sent fire from heaven. The Lord consoled him in the wilderness. The Lord revealed himself to Elijah at Mount Horeb. The Lord gave him as a gift to his people. This is what the Lord has always done. It's what the Lord will always do. Listen to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And he, meaning Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. In other words, the authority to give apostles, to give prophets, to give pastors to his people belongs to the Lord, belongs to Christ. He raises them up to teach. He gifts them to train. He gives them ability to counsel. He strengthens them in encouraging and exhorting and praying and serving and all of it for the building up of the body of Christ. All of it for the glory of Christ. And when he's finished with them, he takes them away. Daniel 2, verse 20. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. It's a testimony to his glory. It's a reason to worship him. Or Psalm 75, verse 6, for not from the east or from the west, not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one, lifting up another. So this isn't arbitrary by God, this isn't reckless by God, but it's careful, wise, always for the good of his people, always for the glory of his name guidance and control and governing of events. It's meant to fix our eyes on the one who never changes. 
the only one who never leaves, the only one who's called a rock, a place of refuge, a strong tower. It's in these kind of moments even when there's change, when leaders come and go, when circumstances do not go as we would plan, that He really teaches us His goodness, His nearness, His affection, His comforts, His immovability. He teaches us Psalm 146, verse 3, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, his God. That's my first question for you this morning. Is that where your hope is? Do you enjoy every day the blessing of the Lord God being your help? Jesus being the one your eyes are fixed upon. So with all the swirling and all the changing and all the seasons and times and the people that are in and out and health that comes and goes and jobs that are won and then lost and relationships that begin and then end and fill in the blank and all of that swirling, that your hope is in Him. When the Lord gives gifts and takes gifts that were never able to last, never able to sustain us, even people, He grows our faith in the giver rather than the gift. So Elijah was this wonderful gift, wonderful servant to the people of Israel, but always there to represent somebody else, always there to speak for somebody else. He was an instrument always in the hands of the Master, of the Savior, of the Lord. Which brings us to the next point. The Lord graciously works through His servants. In the middle of all the giving and the taking, the Lord used Elijah for the glory of His name, for the good of His people. That Elijah is the Lord's prophet that stood against Ahab and Jezebel, who contended with all the false prophets who interceded on behalf of the people who suffered for the sake of God's name, who stood among the elect, chosen by grace to be faithful to the end, to minister the word of the Lord to the end. He brought God's word to God's people. He was used by God's grace to bring about repentance and faith. There's even over a dozen references in Scripture to the word of the Lord coming to Elijah who God had chosen to be His servant. He stood in the gap between an idolatrous world and the God they offended. Ahab is going to embrace Jezebel and her idolatry, and Elijah is there to confront him. Elijah gathers the prophets of Baal and Asherah at Mount Carmel to contend with them. He's going to stand there in that gap. Ahab's going to kill Naboth and send, seize his vineyard in 1 Kings 21. The Lord's going to send Elijah to confront him. So though we should never over-exalt his role, we should appreciate it. We shouldn't demean it. We should see that this is a person that God has 
gifted and chosen to be His servant for the good of His people. Even notice in verse 12 there, as the Lord takes Elijah upon a chariot of fire, or in, in a whirlwind to heaven with chariots of fire and horses of fire, that in verse 12, Elisha is going to cry out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. I think Elijah's crying out that way because he sees, okay, the Lord is taking this soldier from the battlefield. They're going to be down a man out there. Not only was Elijah like a father to Elisha, but like an, a mighty army for Israel. So when he cries, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, I think he's actually referring to Elijah and seeing the chariots and the horsemen as symbolic of Elijah's prophetic ministry. He's like a million soldiers on the battlefield. Elisha knows that's what we're losing here. I think there's something massively important in that for us. I think what it means is that the faithful ministry of God's Word through His servants is more vital to a culture than a powerful military. Always. Every day. That the spiritual health of churches is more vital to a culture than the political health of a government. And the Levites camped, if you remember in Numbers 3, the Levites are commanded to camp around the tabernacle. And then the other tribes are camping around the Levites. The Levites were meant to be this buffer between the rest of Israel and the tabernacle because they knew, okay, the greatest danger to the people of Israel is not outside the camp. It's inside. It's something going wrong between them and God. And if that happens, they're toast. So the Levites were meant to camp around the tabernacle so that nobody broke through and did something irreverent at the meeting place of the Lord. Their greatest need was spiritual health, not economic health. But if the Lord was on their side, they knew, okay, no weapon fashioned against us will stand. But if the Lord isn't on our side, then just one enemy soldier will scatter our entire nation. That's some of what we're meant to see here as Elijah departs, as Elisha responds and cries out. He realizes, okay, we're, we're losing someone who's worth a million soldiers on the battlefield, one of God's prophets. And this is why, by God's grace as a church, we will always focus and dwell upon the word of Christ more than the word of humanity, the health of the church more than the health of the society at large. The condition of our souls more than the condition of our bank accounts. The kingdom of Christ that is coming more than the kingdom of the world that is fading. The spread of the gospel more than the spread of conservative values. The safety and defense of a community rises and falls with the prophets far more often than the politicians. It matters far more. Our souls and lives depend upon Christ, on taking in His Word, on receiving the Word, on giving Him the worship He's due, which is most normally ministered to through His church, through the preaching of the Word, through the right administration of His ordinances, and regular gathering to worship Christ, which is why even in these days where you hear about people debating about our church's essential, 
I find that even those who are arguing for the churches, gathering, being essential, are arguing the wrong way, meaning it's being argued almost entirely in a man-centered way. It's essential to our freedoms. It's essential to our liberties. It's essential. It's our right. Not many are arguing it from a standpoint of there is a God who is due worship from His people, and they are commanded to gather to give Him the honor that He is due, not because it's their right, but because it's His worth. And the health of the culture, the health of a community is dependent upon Christ being central to its life, His Word being central to their diet, and Him being given worship that is due. So praise God for being in a country where there's the freedom to gather and worship. And yes, we should take steps to secure within the, whatever we're given to secure, to, to gather and to worship. But let us remember who it's about and who it's, whose glory is at stake and why it's essential. Because when we lose ministers of the gospel, when we lose the work of the church, when we lose or as ministers of the gospel lose ministries entrusted to us for a season, by whatever means those may be, we're meant to feel it. Which brings us to the next point, that the Lord personally cares about loss. This story being in the Bible even makes that point. The Lord cares about being, people being taken. He cares about these kinds of changes. He cares about loss. You even see just this battle with resignation and dejection is in Elijah's countenance all through these verses. He's almost trudging forward. He's moping toward the end. I even say the closing season of his ministry has not gone as he planned. Even throughout the story, he's trying to shake Elisha loose. Three times he's going to say, please stay here. Verse 2, verse 4, verse 6. Yeah, perhaps Elijah thinks it would be too difficult for Elisha to let go. Perhaps Elijah's just not wanting to deal with letting go and handing things over. Either way, he just, he's like, I just want to go off by myself and go to the end. He's not really facing it well. It's not quite working out the way he thought. Even anxiety about losing Elijah seems to be on everyone's minds. Elisha does not want to see him go. Even each time Elisha tries to shake him loose, Elisha says, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. Verse 2, verse 4, verse 6. And in one sense, this is devotion to his master. In another sense, it's just concern about losing him. Even the sons of the prophets, they were aware that the Lord would take Elijah on this day, and they think that Elisha has this reason to be alarmed about it. Have you heard? Do you not know? This is what's going to happen? Each time Elijah's like, yeah, I know, shut up. I don't want to hear it anymore. Even once Elijah is taken and Elisha goes back over the Jordan, in verse 16, all these sons of the prophets, they're going to say, hey, let us go, go look for him. It may be that the Spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. So they're even in some kind of denial. Okay, maybe he wasn't really taken, taken, just moved. We'll go out and we'll find him and bring him back. 
Elisha knows, nope, he's, he's gone. I don't know what you do in trying to deal with hurt when the Lord takes things from you, things you value, especially people. I know there's a wide range of temptations. And we see some of those even playing out here in the passage. Just pretend it's not real. Deny it. Deny the reality of it. So some of us deal with loss, right? Just pretend it isn't happening. Or pretend it doesn't hurt. Just minimize the pain of it. Or make light of it. Tell a joke. Redirect. Run to the surface. Or be bitter about it. Be angry. Question God's goodness. Pout. Stomp around. Take it out on others. You can see some of that here with Elijah just tromping along, a bit grumpy. Perhaps numb the pain of it. Slam a few beers, binge a Netflix series, work just harder to make more money to buy more stuff. Go shop, get a new outfit, clean the kitchen. Run to something you can control when things feel out of control. Or use shallow cliches. Use phrases like, you know, it'll work out for the better. Or, you know, what doesn't break you makes you stronger. Or, you know, look on the bright side. Just to avoid facing it. To avoid feeling the pain of it. What you'll find is you throw enough cliches at the real troubles of life, and eventually you won't believe any of it. It just doesn't hold up. Which is why God gives us his word, because there's no book in all the world that's more honest about what life is like. Or more full of hope for where you run and what you do when it falls apart. And so what's your way? What's your way of dealing with loss? What's your way of dealing with pain? What's your way of dealing with change? What's your way of dealing with things feeling out of control? Because what the Lord wants to do is help us face it and then trust Him as the one over it, as the one in it, as the one who's for us and with us in the midst of it. He has real comforts, real promises. We're not meant to just sprinkle His Word into our minds and hearts. Often that's what we do with the Bible. We just play with it. We'll just sprinkle a verse here or there. It's like taking concrete. Take a bag of concrete sometime and just sprinkle it around in your yard. And then water it with a hose. And then expect a foundation to appear. That's often what we'll do with Scripture. And what God gives it for is to pour great heaps of it into our souls day after day after day to stir it and to mix it and to dwell upon it in the midst of community, to talk about it, to think about it. And then slowly over time and prayer and the Spirit's help, it just produces this massive foundation of faith in your heart and life. So that when, then when the waves hit you, it just drives you all the more to your Savior. Drives you ever closer to your Redeemer. To grab Him more tightly, to trust Him more deeply, to cling to His faithfulness more securely. So that we would say with Job, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. 
the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You don't get there overnight. You don't get there sprinkling Bible verses, but ingesting, devouring, dwelling upon it chunks and chunks at a time. The Lord gives His servants. The Lord uses His servants wisely. The Lord takes them away. He knows it hurts. He remains near to be with us as we grieve, to comfort us, to grow our faith in the midst of it. And then in doing so, He proves what is the most important part of the whole story, that He abides with us through His Word and through His Spirit, which brings us to our last point. The Lord faithfully abides through His Word and His Spirit. That kingdoms and kings really do come and go. Prophets and ministries come and go, but the Lord remains. God is great. One of the ways that He proves He is great is that when we pass on, He remains. When another raises up, it's He that raises them up. The Lord keeps moving His plans and purposes forward, and we get to participate. Praise God. That matters. Praise God. He uses us as His servants. Praise God. But the work belongs to Him. Notice how the Lord is even leading Elijah and Elisha in the opposite direction to Israel's entrance into the land under Joshua. You see that? It's like He's unwinding the steps of the conquest through Elijah's departure. It's also like he's sort of replaying the transition of leadership from Moses to Joshua. Notice how they're going to go in verse 2 from Gilgal to Bethel. And then in verse 4, they're going to go from Bethel to Jericho. Then verse 6, from Jericho to the Jordan. Then in verse 8, across the Jordan on dry ground. The opposite direction of Israel's entrance into the land under Joshua. And like Moses, Elijah's not going to get a funeral, no marked grave, no memorial, so nobody gets to go gather around and give him much honor. (laughs) The Lord's just going to take him. He's going to take him well. I mean, he's going to get a great exit. Chariots of fire, horses of fire, whirlwind, and the Lord knows how to take his people home. He knows how to care for them in their departure and even how to give them what they deeply desire. But he gets no memorial place. And then after Elijah is taken, the Lord will again part the waters. And you notice how even his mantle falls off. So Elijah is taken, and one thing falls off his body. And we'll see it in a bit. It's going to be the symbol of the word of the Lord and the spirit of the Lord being given to Elisha. You'd think that God could have arranged the mantle to go too, the cloak to go too, but no, of everything that of Elijah that gets taken, that drops off on the ground so that Elijah can pick it up. And again, like a staff, wrap it up and hit the water, just as Moses is going to you know, stand there at the parting of the Red Sea. And then Elijah is just going to work himself back across the Jordan River on dry ground, And through that course of travel, I think the Lord is saying this, new prophet, same God. New prophet, same word of the Lord. 
New prophet, same spirit. New prophet, same chief shepherd who cares for his flock through the ministry of his word. Because all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. That's his point. I believe that's one of the main points of 2 Kings 2, vividly portrayed in the flow of the story. So brothers and sisters, I ask, where is your confidence? And then to encourage you, put your confidence in Christ and in His Word, not in flesh that withers and dies and falls. It's actually one of the reasons we have pulpits. You know, this, this isn't really a pulpit. This is a bandstand. Usually we have a pulpit up here. And if we had a pulpit, it would be a better illustration. But imagine a pulpit here that started to come about sort of in the Middle Ages, but really gained traction in the Protestant Reformation. And especially among Puritan pastors and preachers who wanted pulpits. Because what it was meant to symbolize is the primacy of the word preached rather than the preacher preaching it. In other words, as I'm here halfway through a verse and I fall over and die, that the guys on the front row are meant to come and just throw my body over against the wall. And then the next guy come up and pick up halfway through the verse where I left off. That's the point. And they saw that as a very important illustration every week, that the Word is not movable, that the Word remains flesh, it's grass, it fades, it falls. The Lord takes us in an instant. Our life is a mist. And just drag me down off. And so if it happens the next few minutes, you know what to do. Just drag me off, and then Russell can come up and pick up at verse 10 and keep reading and keep preaching. Preacher after preacher, generation after generation, the word of the Lord abides forever. When the Lord took Moses on Mount Pisgah, he's going to set apart Joshua. We read this this morning in Joshua 1. He's going to say to him, he's going to say to Joshua after he just took Moses, you say, all right, Joshua, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Lord saying, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. So dwell on my word. Walk in my spirit. I'll be there. You even notice here in, in Joshua 1 how the Lord ties his word and his presence together. Even in the ministry of Elijah and Elijah we see it, how his, the spirit and the word are tied together as this is God's presence with you. This is God abiding with you. He delivers His presence and power through His Word and Spirit. This can be the very thing that Elijah asks for before Elijah goes. Notice verse 9. And when they'd crossed, Elijah said to Elijah, Ask what I shall do for you before I'm taken from you. And Elijah said, Please let there be a double portion of your Spirit on me. He said, You've asked a hard thing. Well, not for the Lord, but an impossible thing for Elijah to grant. 
an easy thing for the Lord to grant. Yet if you see me as I'm being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. What Elisha wants is the firstborn portion of the prophetic ministry. Give me a double portion. And Elijah is going to see him go, which is confirmation that his prayer was answered. And even more than what he's going to ask for, God's going to give him. Over twice as many miracles as Elijah, Elisha will do. Far more influence upon the kings of Israel. Far more influence upon all the kings of the surrounding nations. Significantly more biblical material devoted to Elisha over Elijah. The Lord takes one prophet, gives another, while the Lord just keeps abiding and enabling the work and then going on to do even greater things. What we're meant to see is, okay, trust in God's power, not man's power. Trust in his ability, not our ability. Hope in his presence, in the presence of his spirit, not the presence of specific men or women. Leaders certainly matter, but the Lord matters infinitely more because he makes leaders. He raises them up. He fills them with his spirit. He gifts them. Leadership change really can be unnerving, but God is faithful. And he uses change to show that, to prove just how faithful he is. We go, others come. He remains and works wonders. And you realize that if Jesus doesn't come back for the next hundred years, none of us will be here. Yet this work will keep going. If the Lord wills in this room, a whole another generation, that he will keep abiding. He remains and works wonders. Others leave. He abides and achieves still greater things. Our purposes falter. His multiply. It's a pattern of Scripture. Moses and Joshua, we see it there. Elijah and Elisha, we see it there. And even Jesus Christ and his disciples, we're going to see it there. That the departure of Jesus will look very similar to the departure of Elijah. That throughout the Gospels, Jesus is telling his disciples all along the way that he will be taken from them that he is going to his death. And they don't get it. They're often discouraged by it. They're often confused by it. They even want to stop it. But Jesus always promised that he would come to them through his spirit. Jesus died in their place for sin. Jesus was raised in defeat of death. And after his resurrection, he's going to appear to his disciples and say this in Acts 1, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he'd said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. As Elisha saw Elijah go, so the disciples will see Jesus go. And they could have never imagined how this would be a good idea. Just Jesus' bodily form on earth always, right? That's the win. Because 
without his help, we don't get it. He's like, no, no, I got to die. I got to pay for sin. I got to accomplish what the Lord sent me to do. I got to go into the grave. And on the third day, I'm going to be raised. And I'm going to appear. And then even then, you may cling to me and want me to stay. And I'm like, nope, I'm going. I'm ascending to the right hand. I got a universe to rule. But don't worry, I'm, I'm going to send a helper. And he will be with you. And in Acts 2, the Spirit is going to descend and be given to his disciples. Remember, what, what image, how do they see the Spirit appearing? What form does the Spirit sort of symbolically take over them? You remember? Tongues of fire. Isn't that interesting? The Spirit descending in the image of fire upon them. Can you see the parallels with Elijah and Elisha's ministry? The Spirit came like fire from heaven. Their hearts were regenerated. The church was born as promised. He didn't leave them, nor does He leave us as orphans. But he filled them and gifted them and sealed them with his spirit. And because of it, Jesus is with us always. You see, that's how the Lord works. He's always worked. He gives, he takes, but he comforts. And then he gives more than we would ever imagine. He uses whatever those hard circumstances might be, whatever those losses might be, to teach us, to mold us, to give us even more than we thought he could give. He raises up one in the work of gospel ministry, sets them down, always fixing our eyes on Jesus, not the people who will certainly pass away. Always building His kingdom with us and through us, His lowly servants, yet in all of it, Him getting the glory. What's the point? First Corinthians 3, verse 7 that neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Paul understood. Paul got the point. Yeah, I plant, Apollos waters. It's God who causes growth. The one who plants, the one who waters, isn't anything. But God. Because it's, we're God's fellow workers. It's God's field, God's building. We're God's temple. God's spirit dwells in us. So where is the God of Elijah? That's Elisha's question, right? Where is the God of Elijah? Well, right here. With us. In us. Using us. Working through us. Comforting us. Always abiding and working for our good and his glory. And he always will. You know what the really great thing is, though, even as I was reflecting on this, even just this morning, for all of us who are in Christ, we will all actually eventually go meet the Lord just the way Elijah did. You know, we look at the story and go, wow, that's amazing, like chariots of fire and horse of fire and that whirlwind, and then he goes up in the air to go meet the Lord. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 4. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now that's worth chewing on, like for the rest of your life. 
We read sort of the story of Elijah, and it just seems so far out there and strange, but you realize, like, that's how you're going to go. If your body's in the grave, it will be raised. If you're still living, you'll be caught up, and we together will meet Jesus in the clouds without planes, just bodies, souls, Him. Elijah's departure is no less spectacular than what we will someday experience. It will be so. So we can hope in that. We can hope in this Lord who always abides with us now, this Lord who will catch us up into the air with him, and as he promises, and we will always be with the Lord. And even better, together with the Lord forever. Let's go to him now in prayer. Well, Father, we are encouraged by these very words. We are encouraged by your faithfulness, encouraged by this promise that you'll never leave us or forsake us. That though all flesh is grass, it does wither away. Yet your word remains forever. Your spirit abides in your people forever. So we pray that that would comfort us, that that would fix our eyes on Jesus, that we would face loss well, that we would grieve honestly, but that we would do it with Christ in the middle so that our hope in you would abound and abound all the more until we see you face to face. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.